Well, let me invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to John chapter uh, 12, uh, John chapter 12. Uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John as we continue in our study of this uh, Gospel. Uh, we come this morning to John chapter uh, 12, verse 34, and my goal this morning is to cover verses 34 through uh, 43. And the title of the message this morning is An Unbelief Observed. An unbelief observed. You know, one of the most staggering claims of the Christian faith is not simply that Jesus, our Messiah, died, but that he died on the cross and that he saves sinners and draws them to himself through his death on the cross. We've sort of romanticized the notion of the cross because of Christian influence that we forget the scandal that it is. In the Roman world of Jesus' day, the cross was not simply an instrument of death. It was a horrible instrument of public humiliation. It was the worst way to die. And yet the Bible flips the script and teaches us that Jesus died on the cross and that through his death, He accomplished the ultimate triumph of bringing salvation to sinners like you and me. As Christopher Watkins says, and I quote, the cross is a scandal. It is the least palatable element of Jesus' life to Roman sensibilities. And it's an oddly provocative choice for the central image of any new religion hoping to get off the ground in first century Palestine. Yet, it became the central image of the Christian faith. And from the first century onward, Christians have preached to the world the message of salvation through the cross of Christ. And they got their cues from Jesus. For Jesus was talking this way even before he died on the cross as we saw last Sunday. Earlier in John 12, we saw Jesus in a crowning moment of incredible glory being hailed as the Messiah by a huge throng of Jews as Jesus came riding into the city of Jerusalem in what we call his triumphal entry. And to add to that glory, right after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Some Gentiles, some Greeks actually came to Philip and said to him, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip and Andrew then come to Jesus and they tell Jesus about this desire of even these Gentiles, these Greeks to see Jesus. Last Sunday, we saw how Jesus responded to this request by providing a sight of himself the way that he desires to be seen. And in doing that, he began to speak about the fact that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But then he begins unpacking the meaning of that glorification. 
and talks about how it is that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. He talks about what this truth will mean for his followers. And then he speaks about the powerful results that will come about as a result of him being lifted up in death upon a cross. And among those powerful results in verse 32, look at what it says or what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. As for what he means by speaking of himself being lifted up from the earth, John tells us in verse 33 that Jesus was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So Jesus doesn't use this terminology of being lifted up to simply speak of the fact that he's going to die or to try to speak of what will happen to him after he dies, but he uses this language to represent the kind of death that he is going to die. And that kind of death is crucifixion when he will be nailed to a cross and then lifted up upon that cross. And the crowd that is right now listening to Jesus picks up on his meaning clearly enough and they don't like what they are hearing. Prior to these words from Jesus, they were excited about having him as their Messiah, but now their attitude, we're going to see, changes to one of unbelief. And it is this unbelief that John wants to put before us this morning in our passage today so that we might be able to observe this unbelief closely. If you have a hard copy of your notes uh, with you, and I hope you grabbed a copy as you came into the auditorium, uh, the way we'll break down our study of this passage is we'll observe four movements, four movements in John's account of the Jews' rejection of Jesus as a Messiah who saves people through death upon a cross. Four movements in John's account of their rejection of Jesus as a Messiah who saves through death upon a cross. Movement number one, let's word it this way. John records the crowd's protest against Jesus as a dying Messiah. John records the crowd's protest against Jesus as a dying Messiah. Again, in verse 32 and 33, Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And in verse 33, John says he was speaking about the kind of death by which he was going to die. And as I mentioned a minute ago, the people listening to Jesus are not a fan of what he is saying here. They definitely want a Messiah. It's just that they don't want a Messiah who dies and definitely not a Messiah who dies upon a cross. So observe what happens in verse 34. The crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? When they refer to the law 
here. They aren't speaking of only the first five books of the Old Testament. They're just using this terminology to speak of the entire Hebrew scriptures in general. And there are a handful of passages that they might have had in mind that would have led them to believe that the Christ or the Messiah would endure or remain forever. You could write down some of these. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Uh, In that passage, Daniel speaks of the Son of Man being presented before the Ancient of Days, which is God, and being given glory and a kingdom. And then Daniel says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In Isaiah 9, 7, Isaiah speaks of the coming Messiah. And he says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Psalm 89, verses 36 and 37 God speaks of the Messiah and talks about how his throne shall be established forever. And one more, even though there's others, Psalm 110.4, God speaks to the Messiah and says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So given promises like these, This crowd listening to Jesus can't understand for the life of them how all of that squares with the fact that Jesus is going to be lifted up to die. How can the Son of Man die and at the same time fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament that he's going to remain forever? Now, with the benefit of historical hindsight, we all understand how that is the case, right? Jesus would die on a cross. He would then be raised from the dead. He would then be ascended to his father's right hand. And he would then return to the earth at his second coming and establish his kingdom on earth. But the imaginations of these people couldn't even begin to comprehend all of that. So they say to Jesus, how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? They're saying, how can you talk this way about the son of man? And then they ask, who is this son of man? The second question is not a question through which they're honestly seeking for helpful clarification from Jesus. This is a question of protest. They're spitting these words out of their mouths, speaking these words with contempt Essentially, they're saying just a few moments ago, you spoke of yourself as the son of man being glorified. And we were with you then as you were talking about that. But who is this son of man who dies? What kind of son of man are you if you're going to let yourself go dying like this by being lifted up upon a cross? Their protest here is the classic Jewish protest against a crucified Messiah. 
Such a notion is a scandal to them. And here, these Jews in the city of Jerusalem are making it clear that they want nothing to do with any supposed Messiah who plans on being lifted up in death upon a cross. So how does Jesus respond to this protest from this crowd? Well, John tells us, and then he also tells us how this crowd will hear what Jesus says and persist in unbelief which leads us to the second movement in John's account here of the Jews' rejection of Jesus as a Messiah who saves through death upon a cross. Movement number two, John records the crowd's unbelieving response to Jesus. John records the crowd's unbelieving response to Jesus. You'll notice from what follows that Jesus doesn't respond directly to the two questions that this crowd was asking of him because he knows that their questions are not being asked in an honest pursuit of the truth, but that they're simply asking these questions to voice their protest against what Jesus has just said. So in the verses that follow, Jesus doesn't give these people the answers that they are asking for. He gives them the answer that they need. Observe what John records for us in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. That's his answer to their questions. Jesus knows that he has only about three to five days before his crucifixion, depending on when this exact exchange may have happened. Even more, this moment right here, guys, represents the very last moment of Jesus' public ministry prior to him going away and hiding himself before his arrest that will happen on this week. So he says to this crowd, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he has told people that he is the light of the world. And now here he's warning his audience that his time for being with them as the light of the world is going to end very soon. So he says to them, walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. Though the light of the world is standing right in front of these people right now, there is a darkness that these people cannot imagine that is fast approaching and about to overcome them. And Jesus is saying to them, the only way that you can have protection from the darkness is to walk in the light. So walk toward me and walk in my light. That is the only way that you can prevent the darkness from overtaking you, Jesus is saying. He then says, he who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And that's a scary place to be. Such a person does not see obstacles in their path. They can't see the pits and the traps 
that may be right in front of them, nor can they see the villains and the demons and the creatures of the night that are lurking around them. So here is Jesus' appeal to them in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. This is an incredibly gracious appeal to them. Jesus is promising them that if they believe in him who is the light, they will actually become sons of light. In other words, they will come to take on the very characteristics of the light that they are believing in. The light that they would believe in if they would believe in Jesus will not just envelop them from the outside, but will enter into them and then begin to issue forth from them to others, making them sons of light who reflect the light of Jesus to others. These are the words that Jesus speaks to them in this final appeal and talk about not having the light with them much longer. His listeners had little idea how quickly that would happen and how true his words were. Observe what John tells us at the end of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. Just like the sun sets and then hides itself from us, Jesus does the same thing after speaking the words that he has just spoken. And his going away on this occasion represents the moment when Jesus' public ministry to the Jews comes to a close. We will learn in the coming verses that Jesus likely said more than what John records here in verses 35 and 36. But this moment here at the end of verse 36, where John tells us that Jesus went away and hid himself from them, represents the close of Jesus' earthly public ministry. In a real sense, this is the setting of the sun. And now the darkest night that the world has ever known is about to come rushing in clueless about the darkness that is now enveloping them. This crowd of people are probably happy that Jesus has gone away from them, but they should have been careful what they wished for, for this is the worst fate that could befall anyone for Jesus to go away and hide himself from someone. You may be one of those who are resisting Jesus and refusing to believe in him. Perhaps you've grown tired of Jesus showing up again and again and knocking at the door of your heart and you keep resisting him and wishing that he would just leave you alone. And one day Jesus just might give you what you are wishing for and go away and hide himself from you. That's what he does here, going away from these people who are rejecting him. As for where Jesus went, we don't know, but he probably returned to Bethany, 
about two miles outside of Jerusalem where he's going to be spending some time alone with his disciples until his arrest on Thursday night. But all John wants us to know right here is that Jesus is going away and hiding himself from the people who are rejecting what he has been revealing to them about himself. And observe John's description of this crowd's unbelief in verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. In John's gospel alone, Jesus has performed a number of miracles. He's healed a man who was lame for 38 years. He's healed a grown man who was born blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus had been dead for four days. Back when Jesus was in Galilee, he fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children just from five loaves of barley bread and two small fish. And from the other gospel accounts, we learn of many other miracles that Jesus performed throughout his ministry. Yet in spite of all of these miracles, which served as signs pointing to the truth about him as the Messiah, in spite of all of these miracles that Jesus performed, John tells us here that they were literally continuously not believing in him. They were persisting through all of those signs in refusing to believe in Jesus. In other words, they were steadfastly refusing to believe in him as a Messiah who could draw men to himself and overcome Satan through death upon a cross. And from what we have learned already, they're not simply refusing to believe in him because of a lack of evidence. That's not the problem, but simply because Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted. As we read this passage uh, and the words that I've just read to you, some of you might be left with the same questions that many of John's original readers toward the end of the first century would have been left with as they read the gospel of John. The questions are, how could Jesus be the true Messiah when his own people ended up not believing in him? Shouldn't their disbelief in Jesus in and of itself serve as proof that maybe he's not the Messiah after all? These are the questions that no doubt the Jews of the Apostle John's day were asking. And John's answer we're going to see is no, the rejection of his own people who are rejecting him is not proof against his messiahship for their unbelief and their rejection of him was actually predicted prophesied in scripture. And this leads us to the third movement in John's account of the Jews rejection of Jesus as a Messiah who saves through death upon a cross. Number three, John describes how the crowd's disbelief in Jesus was foretold by Isaiah. 
John describes how the crowd's disbelief in Jesus was foretold by Isaiah, who, by the way, prophesied about 750 years prior to this moment. John wants us to know that this unbelief, this crowd's unbelief in a Messiah who saves people through being lifted up from the earth and death upon a cross is nothing new. And he wants us to know that the unbelieving response of the Jews to the Messiah here in John 12 was foretold and pointed to hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah. Listen to what John says in verse 38. He says this. In other words, this unbelief of this crowd at this final moment of Jesus' public ministry, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Where is that verse? Isaiah 53, what? One. So John is saying, if you want to understand what's going on here, Go to Isaiah 53.1 for understanding. And so uh, I would encourage you to go to Isaiah 53, uh, where we'll spend just a few moments here because John is the one who is pointing us to this passage. These words that John has just quoted are found in one of the clearest messianic passages in the Old Testament, right at the beginning of Isaiah 53. But to appreciate those words you also should understand them in the light of the stunning words that precede them at the end of Isaiah 52. Words that actually have a ton to do with what is happening here in this very conversation in John 12. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, God is speaking of the coming Messiah, and he says, Behold, my servant will prosper He will be high and what? Lifted up and greatly exalted. Literally in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he will be lifted up and glorified. And notice the words lifted up there in verse 13. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the same word that Jesus uses in John 12, 32, when he speaks of himself being lifted up. So God is saying, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and glorified. But then notice how God goes on to explain what the lifting up and glorifying of a servant will entail in the next two verses of Isaiah 52. Look at verses 14 and 15. We're expecting some glorious, amazing scene of glorification and exaltation. But God says, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred. Disfigured is the meaning here. More than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, verse 15, through the marring of this man, my servant's countenance and form 
He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. What a collision of ideas we see in these verses. The Messiah, we're told, is going to be lifted up and glorified. And his being lifted up will involve people being astonished at him because his appearance will be more disfigured or marred than that of any man, so that through his marring, the marring of his body, he might sprinkle and cleanse the nations. Leaving the powerful people of the earth speechless with astonishment, seeking to comprehend it all. Wow, what kind of lifting up is this being spoken about in Isaiah 52? What kind of glorification is Isaiah speaking about here? And is it any wonder that the very next verse, Isaiah 53, 1 says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who would believe such a thing? of a Messiah who is lifted up and glorified by being marred and through that marring and disfigurement sprinkling the nations and bringing them cleansing. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And these words serve as the headline of all that follows in Isaiah 53 which speaks about the coming of the Messiah who will bear our sorrows and bear our sins and be stricken of God and pierced for our transgressions and crushed from the weight of our iniquities. A Messiah who will be cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, Isaiah says, to whom the stroke that he received was due. Yet in this chapter of Isaiah 53, the prophet goes on to tell us that the Lord was pleased to crush him, to render him as a guilt offering, promising that his servant, the righteous one, will justify or make righteous the many. And then amazingly, the prophet hastens to tell us that the Lord was pleased to prolong the days of this servant on the other side of his death. That's resurrection, allotting him a portion with the great and dividing the spoils of his victory with others precisely because he had poured out himself unto death. This is crazy stuff. This is the gospel being preached through Isaiah over 700 years before it actually came to pass. And in the context of all of these truths, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 1, who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord represents the saving power of Jehovah. And Isaiah is asking, to whom has this mighty salvation been revealed such that they will understand it and believe it? 
The language of Isaiah here teaches us that in order for a person to believe in the message of salvation through a dying and resurrecting Messiah, they must have God reveal it to them and render them able to believe. And the Apostle John, in our passage today, in John 12, is quoting Isaiah's words in Isaiah 53.1 to make the point that the unbelief of the Jews in response to Jesus in John 12 was Isaiah's complaint 750 years prior. And Isaiah's complaint was a harbinger of the very unbelief that is still on display here in John 12. I think John's made his point quite well, but he's not finished. The reason these Jews in John's day did not believe in Jesus is because they could not. Listen to what John says beginning in verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe. Literally, they were not able to believe. In other words, in and of themselves, these Jews did not have the ability within them to believe. The message of the gospel of salvation through a dying Messiah is so contradictory to human reason and the human heart is so spiritually dead and desperately wicked that it takes a miracle of God's grace for a person to be able to believe this message as they should. So when you read John's words in verse 39 saying they could not, they were not able to believe, you should realize that his words are describing you and me also if left to ourselves apart from God's miraculous work in us. None of us are able in and of ourselves to believe this message of salvation through a crucified Messiah apart from God regenerating us or giving us life, our hearts would have remained in unbelief and would have only become harder and harder upon each hearing of the truth of this message of salvation through Jesus. As for these Jews, John says, look at verse 39 again, for this reason they could not believe For Isaiah said again, and now John quotes from Isaiah 6. Look at verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Wow. Here in verse 40, John is providing us a rather loose quotation from Isaiah 6, which is another famous chapter in Isaiah. And I would encourage you to turn there if you like. You will recall that at the beginning of Isaiah 6, Isaiah has a vision of God upon a throne. In verse 1, he speaks about how he saw the Lord literally And if I go with the Greek, ancient Greek translation of this verse, Isaiah saw the Lord literally lifted up. There's that same Greek word, 
that Jesus uses in verse 32. Lifted up and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. And Isaiah speaks about how he saw seraphim angels around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of this sight of Jehovah was so great that Isaiah responds in verse five of Isaiah six saying, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. At this point, an angel upon hearing Isaiah's cry takes a burning coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's mouth with the coal. And the angel says in verse seven, behold, this is touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin forgiven. And then God says in verse eight, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, then I said, here am I, send me. That's the response of those who have truly experienced the grace of God. Please send me, Lord so that I can tell others about you. Well, Isaiah volunteered, so God gives him his commission, and it's a most unusual commission. In verses 9 and 10, God says to Isaiah, go. And Isaiah's like, okay, I got that. I'm going to go and tell this people, all right, I'm going to talk to the people of Israel. But now here's what I'm supposed to say. Let me write this down. Here's what I say to them. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render, God is saying to Isaiah, the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Wow. This was literally Isaiah's commission. To go and preach the truth to a stubborn and stiff-necked, unbelieving people so that his preaching of the truth would actually serve to harden the hearts of these rebellious Israelites, rendering them even more unable to hear and more unable to understand and see, which would thus render them ripe for the judgment of God that is destined to fall upon them. What is described here in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 that John is quoting in John twelve forty is actually the natural effect of the truth upon the heart of any person who is left to themselves and who does not have the life-giving spirit of Christ at work in them. Such a person hears the truth, and rather than accept it, they process what they hear until they figure out a way that they can reject it, thus leaving their heart even harder than it was before they heard the truth, leaving their eyes more blind 
than their eyes were before and leaving their ears more deaf to the truth than they were before. This is the way it is with every single person except those whom God brings to life and miraculously gives the ability to see the truth and hear the truth and believe it and receive it into their lives. Please don't read a passage like this and say, man, I'm just so glad I was smart enough to see the truth and believe in Christ. No, you weren't smart enough. God did a miracle in you and you should give him the glory for that miracle. As for why John is quoting from this passage in this particular moment in John 12, he he does so to explain why it happened that when the Messiah came in his own day, his preaching, the Messiah's preaching of the truth about himself served to harden the hearts of those who rejected him, just like what happened with the preaching of Isaiah, the prophet. And in the mind of John, this is no coincidence. For in verse 41, look at this, John refers to the words he's just quoted from Isaiah 6, which you'll recall begins with Isaiah having a vision of Jehovah And John says, these things Isaiah said because he, Isaiah, saw his glory and spoke of him. John is telling us that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up at the beginning of Isaiah 6, the glory of what he was seeing was the very glory of Jesus himself. I read a couple commentators who suggest that Isaiah in this moment at the beginning of Isaiah 6 is looking into the future and seeing the ascended Christ seated on his throne at the Father's right hand. But either way, however you understand that, John is telling us that Isaiah saw Christ. He saw the glory of Christ. And from that glory... From his vision of that glory, he went forth and preached the truth to people whose hearts only became hardened from it. And now here in John 12 is Jesus, who is himself the glory of God that Isaiah saw. And he's standing before this crowd of people at the end of his public ministry And all that he has said in this moment and all that he has done and said over the full length of his public ministry has served to harden their hearts also. This hardening of the hearts of the Jews to reject Christ is actually a part of God's sovereign plan so that the Jews would be left to the stubbornness of their own hearts and end up being guided by their own evil hearts to crucify Jesus and thus to reveal beyond dispute the true depth of their wickedness and to bring about the death of the Messiah in such a way that God would use the Messiah's death to bring atonement to sinners who would believe in him. 
And so that the message of salvation would go out to all the world, including to the very people who crucified Jesus. If you read Acts chapter 2, you see that Peter preaches the gospel in Acts 2 to some of the very people involved in crucifying Jesus, telling them that if they repent and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, they could be saved. And in Acts 2, we learn that many of them did exactly that and became among the first Christians whose lives were changed through this death that they participated in bringing about. But as of right now here in John 12, it seems that no one in this final scene of Jesus' public ministry is believing in him. To all appearances, it looks like Jesus' public ministry is ending with a whimper, which puts us a million miles downhill from the triumphal welcome that we saw Jesus receiving earlier in this very chapter. But the picture is not totally negative. There are some glimmers of light in the hearts of some. And this leads us to the fourth and final movement in John's account of the Jews' rejection of Jesus as a Messiah who saves through death upon a cross. Let's word it this way. John critiques the religious leaders who believed in Jesus, but not enough to confess him publicly. John critiques the religious leaders who believed in Jesus, but not enough to confess him publicly. Observe what John says, beginning in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they love the, or be, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Notice John speaks of these as rulers. In other words, rulers of the Jews. These would have been members of the Sanhedrin and perhaps colleagues beyond that. We learn, write this reference down in Luke 23, 50, that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. And in John 19, we're going to learn that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. At this very moment, we also learn in John 3 that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews who came to Jesus by night to speak with him. And even later in John, in John 7, 51, we see how Nicodemus, during one of the councils of the Sanhedrin, spoke up and urged his colleagues to be cautious about taking action against Jesus until they had given him a fair hearing. And he even took some flack for standing up for Jesus in this way. So we actually know the names of two rulers of the Jews who were believing in Jesus on some level. But John tells us here in verse 42 that there were many, which seems to indicate that there were others among the rulers of the Jews who were coming to the conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. 
But John is quick to say their faith in Jesus was not yet what it should have been. In fact, John identifies three flaws in their faith. First of all, he tells us that because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. So they believed in Jesus, at least on some level, but not enough to say it out loud for fear of offending the Pharisees, whom they knew despised Jesus and had power to sway the people against them. Secondly, these rulers who were coming to some level of faith in Jesus didn't confess Jesus publicly for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue which would have spelt the end of their tenure as a member of the Sanhedrin and it would also excommunicate them from the religious community of Israel. So they're believing in Jesus on some level, but not believing in him enough to trust him with these possible outcomes. Ultimately, John says in verse 43, for they love the approval of, of men rather than the approval of God. Literally, the Greek of this passage is, for they love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. They loved receiving glory from other men more than they loved the thought of receiving glory from God, leaving them more fearful of rejection from their fellow men than fearing rejection from God. It's fascinating to me that John here makes no excuses for these men who must have found themselves in a terrible predicament that I think many of us could appreciate. But John shows no regard for how tough their predicament was and all that they might lose. He just goes right to the heart and faults them for their fear of man and their love of approval from man more than their love of approval from God. How's that for truth speaking? Now, thankfully, we know that at least in the case of two of these many who were among the rulers of the Jews, their faith eventually matured into something that did prevail over their fear of man. John 19.38, you can write that reference down. John's going to tell us that after Jesus' death, I quote, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate if he might have the body of Jesus to bury it. In Mark 15, verse 43, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea had to gather up courage to take this step. So it seems that his faith in Jesus eventually came to fuller flower than it is at this moment in John 12. And we also learn in John 19 that Nicodemus joined Joseph of Arimathea in giving Jesus a proper burial. And we learn that Nicodemus participated in this at great expense to himself personally. So it seems that the faith of these two men grew into something that was real and later would manifest itself in them being willing to step out for Christ. And perhaps this ended up being the case with others as well. Either way, the faith of these rulers of the Jews at this 
moment here in John 12 had not come to full fruition because they were not yet willing to publicly confess Christ like they should have. And thus their present state of faith comes in for serious criticism from John. They might have believed in Christ on some level, but they did not believe in him enough to believe that he was worth losing their positions over. We're going to stop here for today and pick up here next time, but let me just make a couple quick points very quickly as we wrap up. From beginning to end, the passage we've looked at today is, it's a sad and tragic passage. Last week, we were treated to a sight of Jesus, the a beautiful sight of Jesus, the way that he wishes to be seen as a Messiah who would defeat Satan and save people by being lifted up upon a cross in death. And now today we see on display the tragic unbelief of the very people who were treated to this wonderful, amazing sight of him. They did not believe in Christ. And verse 39 tells us they could not And our passage today reminds us of what a miracle it is that any person believes in Christ for salvation. If these Jews could have Jesus in the flesh doing miracles and speaking truth and revealing himself the way that he does, and their hearts not only persist in unbelief, but actually become only harder, then we should thank God that he in his grace and mercy reached down and touched our hearts and enabled us to believe the truth about Jesus and be saved. Aren't you grateful for that? I was talking with a delightful new believer in Christ together with my wife yesterday in our home. And this new believer said to us, the greatest gift God has given to me is the gift of trust the ability to trust in Christ. And that is so true. And we should thank him every day for the miracle that he has performed in us, enabling us to trust in Christ for salvation rather than leaving us to ourselves. And we should pray for all those that we are burdened for, whose salvation we desire, that God would so work in their hearts that he would give them life And give them this gift of faith. We're also reminded in this passage today that God is not pleased with the faith in Jesus that refuses to confess him publicly. So each of us who claims to believe in Jesus should ask ourselves if our faith is such that we're willing to open our mouths and confess him publicly before others. Or do we try to keep our belief in him on the down low? Are we secret disciples of Jesus? for fear of losing approval from others. My call to all of you in this room this morning is very simple. Believe in Jesus. Believe in this Messiah who died on the cross to bring salvation to sinners like you and me. Call upon his name and receive salvation and the forgiveness of your sins through him. And if you have believed in Jesus... I would ask you, have you been baptized? Have you confessed his name publicly through being baptized in the waters of baptism? 
And then even beyond baptism, are you willing to confess the name of Jesus publicly without fear of the cost that you might have to pay for that confession? If you do believe in Jesus, but you struggle with being bold in your faith, just cry out to God and ask him to help you. He'll be delighted to help you and remind yourself of how public Jesus was willing to go in his efforts to accomplish your salvation by hanging publicly in shame upon a cross for you so that he could save you and so that he could then confess your name boldly before his father in heaven. Let the bold love of Jesus for you nurture within you a holy boldness to be just as public in your love for him as he was in his love for you. Let the price he paid for your salvation put into perspective any price that you might have to pay for confessing the name of Jesus. This morning, we are blessed to have three individuals who will be coming up to this microphone in just a few moments to confess Christ and to tell you about his goodness and saving them. And they will be sharing this before we baptize them at the conclusion of our service. But before they come up to share with us, let me just take a moment to pray for us this morning. Lord God, we are so thankful for a passage like this. The depth and the texture of this passage that helps us to understand the greatness of your love and your grace in saving us and giving us the gift of trust to believe in you. We see Jesus, though, still speaking truth, and that's our calling to others to speak the truth of the message of Christ to others. Help us to be faithful to do that, Lord, all the while praying earnestly for you to touch the hearts of those who hear that you might give them the gift of faith that they might believe and receive. And if there's any here this morning that has never yet believed in you, Lord, we ask that you would save them, save them today. And we will give you all of the praise and the glory. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.